This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 290 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the show Michael Lopez. Now, Michael has an incredibly powerful story that I was given a glimpse of through one of the videos that went viral on social media a few months ago. His story is that of a regular child who had some trials like many of us, but then found his way amongst the wrong crowd and taking some bad life decisions, uh, which was followed by several years in crime, drugs, prison stays. And then he hit a point where he basically said enough is enough and started the journey to turning his life around. Now, he's not only an advocate for people under a psychiatric hold, but he also spends much of his time on Skid Row feeding the homeless. So you're going to hear not only his incredible story, but how you can also be part of the solution in that area as well. So before we get to that interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever app that you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, I love reading the feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more and more visible as we climb the virtual charts for people that are looking for a podcast like this. And then take whichever outlet you have, social media, word of mouth, carrier pigeon, and share these episodes. Each one of these men and women has come on this podcast to give their life story, their, their life's work to you for free. This is a 300-person library almost now, and every single one of these episodes is free. So all I ask you, the audience member, is to help share these incredible stories because I know people all over planet Earth need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Michael Lopez. Enjoy. So, Michael, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
I'm in uh, Los Angeles, California. It's warm. It's sunny. It's beautiful. I hate to brag, but it is. <laughs> uh, more specifically, I'm in the city of Bell. Bell. Okay. And then, uh, so going back to the very beginning, where were you actually born? Uh, I was born in um, Harbor City, California. It's the uh, harbor area out near San Pedro and stuff. I was uh, raised in the city of Huntington Park. Okay. So your parents, what did they do as a profession? Uh, growing up, let's see, my dad always worked for General Motors. He retired from General Motors in Van Nuys after, uh, I don't know, close to 30 years. And my mom has always worked as a waitress. And then uh, her side, she had a lot of side jobs that she did. She sold lingerie and uh, Princess House Crystal and Tupperware. Um, she combed wigs. I remember in the 70s, she had the living room was always full of wigs and people would come and drop off their wigs and my, my mom would comb them and people would come and pick them up. Brilliant. Now, you know, I just remembered, you know, we, we went to that place with your dad. So I'm going to salvage that. I think it was only the last few minutes that um, we had an issue. So um, in hindsight, rather than drag you through all those memories again, let me uh, let me see. I think where it started going wrong was when I asked you um, about what you want to do as a career. So let me just jump into that question. And what I'll do, I'll just splice those two together. Um, okay. All right. So when you were going through the school system, as it were, uh, what was your career dream? Uh, I remember my, my very first dream, my very first career dream was uh, to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to write. I've always liked, uh, enjoyed writing. That was made more possible uh, one day I was going through a a newspaper here in the state of Huntington Park. It was called the Huntington Park Bulletin. And I came across a very small article that said Stringers Wanted. It had a contact number and name. I had no idea what a stringer was. Uh, I was 11 years old. And I remember calling the number and I spoke to a guy named Murtis Hayes. And he was a sports reporter for the Southgate Press. And he was interested, you know, um, he was fascinated that I was only 11 years old calling him with questions. So what he did was he set up a, a tour of the Southgate Press for me. And my mom dropped me off and he gave me a tour of the entire building. It was all Southgate Press, a local newspaper. What a stringer ended up being as a reporter. He covered high school sports. And so he gave me the assignment of covering um, the Huntington Park High School girls varsity basketball team. And I, he gave me a season pass, and I thought I was cool to walk in free to the games at 11 years old. But I remember writing my very first story covering the varsity basketball team, and I still remember uh, the title was Spartan Girls Top Franklin 35-19 to 19 by Michael Lopez. And if I remember correctly, it was about two or three paragraphs long. And a few weeks after I, uh, after the story printed, actually, I got my first paycheck in the mail. And if I remember correctly, it was about eight bucks, nine bucks, somewhere around there. And I was pretty excited. So I, I was set on writing. I was set on writing. Um, my fifth grade teacher at the time was really proud of me. And we started a, a writer's club uh, in my elementary school because of that. So I'd always been interested in journalism. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned as well other accolades uh, through school and then um, one specific incident that stopped you um, getting that particular accolade. Yeah, so through junior high school, 
uh, in high school, I was always interested in student body, student council, you know, uh, running for office. I was never the shy type. And um, I remember I was, you know, I won the election for seventh grade class president and then eighth grade class president. Once I got to high school, I went all the way up, freshman vice president, things like that. But once I hit my senior year in high school, I ran for student body president. And I won the election for student body president. Uh, however, on the same day as the election happened, I was involved in a really big gang fight uh, in front of the school. And I believe it was like a 20 on 20 type of deal. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was pretty huge. People were arrested. People were hurt. And, you know, a lot of people got away unscathed. But uh, when I came to school the next day, my office had been revoked. I had been taken out of student council because of the incident. And I, I remember being really disappointed, really mad, because I, I didn't start the fight. But the fight was, you know, I mean, the fight involved me directly. And so it was supposed to be a one-on-one a -on -one type of deal, uh, and it just turned into a big gang fight. Right now, with with you saying obviously that you you had the influence of drugs, you know, growing up. At what point did you become somewhat of an a, an affiliation with a certain group or gang? Um, it was just after high school. Well, I mean, I started running. Well, let me let me try to go back a little bit. The guys that I hung around with in junior high school and high school, we weren't a gang yet. We were just a bunch of guys that hung out played football on the weekends. We'd play other other football teams at the local parks. And the football team that I played with turned into a righteous street gang here in L.A. Um, and so it turned into a gang. And it, it wasn't till well after high school, maybe a year or two after high school, that I really got heavily involved in the gang life and drugs. Uh, and that's when everything took a turn for the worse. I... Took my very first hit of crack probably at about 19, maybe 20. And I went on a 25-year ride. Had no idea what was in store. And what do you think was the, the, the underlying factor that made you take that first hit? Well, that can go way, way back to, say, my freshman year of high school. So... My freshman year of high school, my career dreams changed. I wanted to be a police officer. So I wanted to start that path by joining uh, the, uh, what is it, police explorers here in Huntington Park. And the couple of guys that I was hanging around with, uh, they all, we all wanted to be police explorers. So we went to go get our applications. And I remember taking my application home and asking my dad, it was at a dinner table. Hey, Dad, you know, I've got this application. Can you sign it? I want to be a police explorer. You're going to have to buy uniforms and stuff like that. And I remember handing it to my dad, and my dad balled it up, and he threw it in the trash can, you know. And, and in Spanish, he said, you know, I'm not going to sign that. You're you're a piece of shit. You're a liar. You're, you're no good for anything. You know, how are you going to be an honest police officer if you're a liar? You know, I remember crying and stuff. And the reason my dad did that, was because two weeks prior, I found out or I, I caught my mom having an affair. She was cheating on my dad, and I told my dad about it. And for about two or three weeks, you know, as you can imagine, the house was really dark. It was a sad place. It was a lot of animosity, a lot of fighting. And one day, my mom pulled me to the side and said, look, son, 
you have to convince your dad that you lied. You know, you have to tell him that, that you lied, that it's not true, because if you don't, we're going to end up getting divorced and your dad's world is going to fall apart. You know, all my dad's family is in Mexico. My dad is the only one here. He's been in the United States since I believe he was like about 13 or 14 years old on his own. And so I did that. I convinced my dad, hey, dad, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I lied. I was mad with mom, you know, and I'm sorry I lied to you. And so from that moment on, my dad thought, you know, he believed me. He, he thought that I lied and I almost wrecked their marriage. So there was no way he was going to let me be a police officer, uh, let alone join the cadets. And so those guys that I was hanging around with at that time went on to be police explorers. And I, I stopped hanging around with them because they were they were doing police explorer things and talking police explorer stuff. So I hung around with the other guys. And the rest is history. See, and that's so, so crazy. When we talked before and you told me, you know, this, this story the first time, you know, I'm, I'm used to talking to some people, you know, many people on the show who, again, many of whom found their way to the military, the first, the police fire. Um, but their, their, the, the home life when they were young was awful, uh -huh. you know, like murder and drugs and all kinds of stuff. Um, but with yours, it shows the fragility of childhood where just a few bad decisions can send a child the wrong way. And, you know, to, you, you are by no means, you know, the only person I've heard who has been in that same situation, who's caught, um, you know, a mother or a father cheating and has basically been bribed or threatened or whatever it was not to, to say. And who'd have thought of that one moment that your, your mum had no idea that, that particular decision to ask you to do that would have such a detrimental effect on your life for a couple of decades after that. Yeah, for the rest of my life, because, you know, it, it, it set me on a different path. And, you know, I've experienced all the bad that I've experienced in my life, my drug addiction, the gang life, the prison life. I, I know a lot of it is self-inflicted, but the root, the root to all of that was my mom asking me to, you know, to lie to my dad again. And I, I, I'm going to be honest, many times through my life, I've always wondered what would have happened if I would have just not said anything to my dad at all, ignored the problem. You know, my mom, uh, my mom cheated on my dad for, I'm going to say at least 30 years. But the time came where my dad found out on his own that she was cheating. And so as life went on, my dad chose not to know. If that makes sense, uh, and sad, that sadly it, it does because it's it actually happened to my parents too. Yeah, he chose not to know. Uh, there were several big fights that they had throughout these thirty years, where he he himself with his own eyes saw, um, you know, but he chose not to know, and he stood by my mom's side to literally. Uh oh, <laughs> here come the tears. He stood by her side literally to her last her last breath to when she passed away 10 years ago. Um, and I was in prison when she died. So I, I wasn't able to come home and mourn, but my dad loved her to her last dying breath. Yeah, it's both beautiful and tragic at the same time. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that he yeah. loved her that strongly and, you know, and, and oversaw all the other things. So, and I'm sorry again for, for you know, sending you down these emotional paths. Oh no no it's no no problem it's life it's what I'm here for to tell my story and and I thank you for letting me tell it you know I thank you very much but it is what it is it's part of my story it's 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 a big turning point you know I 
was in prison when my when my mom passed away. I remember the prison guards coming up to the cell to let me know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard to be incarcerated during a time like that because, you know, I'm in I'm in a place where I can't cry. I'm in a place where I have to be in a state of war readiness, you know, with a second's notice, you know. And I guess what made it worse was that I knew what time the services were going to be starting so I can kind of guesstimate at what time she would probably be lowered into her her, her resting place. And, you know, it, it killed me that day. It was just crazy, just, you know, trying to get a glimpse of a clock, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. And it was just, you know, I wouldn't wish that upon my, my worst enemy. What made it worse was that my petition to come home to attend the services was denied. You know, some guys do get to come home for services and some don't. I wasn't allowed to, you know, even though my family had uh, the cash uh, bond ready to pay prison guards to escort me up and back to the services. I, I, I think they you have to pay uh, guards 24 hours around the clock to escort you all the way home. I think you get like a 30 minute visit at the service, just you alone, no family members, no friends around. And then they take you right back. But uh, the judge wouldn't even give me that. So I'll, I'll never really had that closure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, then let's go back to the, to the beginning then. So sure. from, you know, graduating high school, finding yourself running with the wrong crowd now, which is crazy. I've never heard of a gang be started by a football team either. So that's a, that's a bizarre turn of events, a, a positive, you know, bonding um, experience with the sport that then kind of spills over into going the wrong, the wrong route. Yeah, definitely. That, and that's exactly how it happened. You know, we, we play against all these other different football teams and sometimes you end up fighting at one of these football games because someone hit someone too hard or whatever the case. And uh, it just turned into a gang. Um, for a while there in the 80s, some of these other football teams also turned into gangs, but with time they faded away. Unfortunately, you know, the football team, the gang that I ran with is still around to today in 2020. Um, you know, and it's just, I'm not proud of it, but that's where I came from, you know? Yeah. So how did that initially lead you into, um, you know, a road of crime and ultimately your first arrest? Well, I started, you know, hanging around with guys who, you know, we were all doing drugs and some guys were doing, uh, different types of drugs. I remember hanging around, there was a set of brothers, uh, one, two, three, I think there was three or four brothers who they're the ones that introduced me to crack. And I remember I always had a car, so I would always take them and we would go buy the dope. We'd go to Watts, to the uh, projects in Watts and buy, buy the dope, buy the crack. And the first three or four, I don't know, five, six, seven times that I was with them when they smoked it, when it was my turn to hit it, I would fake the hit because I'd never seen it. I wasn't sure what it was going to do to me and I wanted to see what it was going to do to them first. And so... Like I said, the first few times that we went, I would fake a hit and just keep going until the day I said, okay, well, it looks okay. Let me go ahead and take this hit. And I took my first hit. I enjoyed the high. Uh, but boy, did I not enjoy what it did to me for the next 20 or so years. You know, I was not ready for the ride that it took me on. Um, but it, it took me down some really dark roads. You know, I was robbing and stealing and mugging. Uh, to get high, I was stealing from my wife, from my mom, my grandma, my brother, for everybody, you know, everybody that I can steal from, I, I was going to steal from, you know, and things got so bad. I was, you know, burglarizing houses and, and just, you know, to be able to, to get high. 
And then, then my uh, prison career started in and out of prison all the time. I couldn't stay clean. Uh, I was hooked. I was hooked on that, that crack cocaine. Now, what about um, the ability to get the drugs once you're in prison? Because again, I'm I try and preface this every time we discuss prisons and and even the law enforcement side. I'm a fireman, and I've not been in, incarcerated mm-hmm. before, so um, I don't pretend to to understand. But at the same time, um, you hear that that you know they're they're able to get the drugs in the prisons as well. So, what was your personal experience? So, believe it or not. Um, uh, five prison terms. I did five prison terms. The only time during my criminal career that I was ever clean was when I was in prison. It sounds ironic, but I wouldn't touch any dope in prison because I'm trying to come home. I'm trying not to get into any more trouble. And on top of that, you know, more than likely I wasn't going to be able to afford prison prices. There was no way my family was going to pay my prison bill. And if you can't pay those prison bills, you know, you can't pay that drug dealer. You know, you're going to get holes poked in you. You know, so again, I was, I was, I was clean while I was in prison. I, I was Michael Lopez, believe it or not, while I was in prison. And I was aimed, uh, I was aiming to get out. I, when I didn't want to lose any uh, release dates. I was trying to get out and, and start all over again. Not the drug life, but to start life over again. And every time I got out, I just, you know, I fell after, you know, a certain amount of time, certain amount of time, just kept falling and going right back into prison because I kept coming home to my homeboys. You know, that's the thing that I I didn't change. And that's what kept sending me right back. But, you know, there's any drug available in prison, you know, five times the price that you'd pay for on the street. But any any drug is available in prison. You know, I hung out with the drug dealers and, and stuff like that. I mean, if I wanted something, it was there. Credit was good. You just better be able to pay it. And I wasn't ready to start that road. I, I've seen a lot of things happen to people in prison when they can't pay their their drug debts. Uh, I saw a lot of people uh, pick up charges, you know, for getting caught for uh, possessions and stuff like that. It just it didn't seem worth it to me in prison. I guess I was more of a gambler outside of prison. See, that's such a fascinating perspective because that shows you intrinsically that you had the ability to stop. And that it was the environment ultimately that set you up for failure when you came back out of uh, out of prison. Yeah, definitely. I, I always came back with the intention of doing good, but after a, you know a little shorter time, I, I I fell right back to to being you know who I who I used to be. Right now, you, we also talked before um, about when you first entered jail. Um, well, very. Very poignant was the sign that you you told me about reading, but then tell me about that. But how also that that ties in with with race as well. So we were talking. I remember what you're talking about. It's the prison system. There's a different system between the prison system and say the local county jail uh, system. But in prison, my very first time, I remember stepping off the bus, shackled uh, my wrist to my waist and shackled at the feet, and you step off. The bus and you you know you look up and the very first sign that's right in front of you painted on the wall bright yellow it says no warning shots no warning shots so it took a few minutes for that to sink into what what that meant i hadn't realized the world that i was now in and once i put it together it, it became very scary especially when i walked onto that yard the first time and you look up and you see the guard towers and you see the prison guards uh, you know, up there with their rifles, you know, it's like, wow, you know, what did I get myself into? What the hell am I doing here? 
uh, it was a very scary, eerie feeling. Um, Another thing that I was talking about or that I mentioned is that the racism, the violence that the system itself promotes, the second you step off the bus, you see that sign and then you're being asked, who do you run with? Meaning, you know, who do you run with? Are you running with Mexican gangs, with black gangs, with the North, with the South, with the whites? Who are you? And then they segregate you according to who you run with. So now you're being separated in all these different cells. So now, you know, this cell is, is northern Mexicans, one cell is southern Mexicans, one cell has the Bloods, one cell has the Crips, and you're all just fighting from, you know, between, you know, uh, from behind cell bars until you're let out into those prison yards. So it's like the system itself promotes that racism. They promote that violence, you know. Instead of just mixing everyone together, you know, they, they, they separate you and they let you run with who you run with. Yeah, and then we've discussed prisons a few times on here, and again, you know, my whole thing is is obviously looking at what we're doing, and then asking the question: Is it? You know, are we doing it the best way? You know, looking at other countries and the way they do the prison system, and two glaring things that we talked about earlier is, firstly, you know, the 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 drug policy here. You know, that if I wonder if you took out every single prisoner that was had some sort of relationship with drugs, whether they were selling, smuggling, you know, um, like you were doing, actually being an addict and, and turning the crime to, to feed your habit. What impact would that have on on the systems? And the other thing is, say, for example, the Norway one that we spoke about, that I've, I've talked about on this uh, this podcast too, instead of segregating and locking people away, you know, what if, if, if it was some of these models where you are integrated and you do live together and you have to cook and you have to clean, you have to go to work and you learn a new trade. And, you know, so you're, you're taught to be that member of the community that's going to go back and, and hopefully thrive the next time. And I, I don't see from a completely layman's standpoint, just a regular citizen, um, the way that we're doing working and the prison population has exploded. I mean, I told you the statistics, the seventies, we had 350,000 prisoners. Now we have 2.3 million prisoners. So that's definitely not, not working. Um, yeah, something's not working. No. And then that's the thing. And, and my goal is as a first responder, you know, I, I want to obviously the part of me is, as a human being wants to, to minimize the amount of people that go to jail and just lock away the ones that are truly sociopaths that are lit, you know, to have no morals and an absolute dangerous society. And then, you know, it, it have the other people all integrated and, and thrive and be great members of society. But also, you know, the prison guards, the, the, the men and women of, of law enforcement that are in the prisons, you know, their safety. I mean, they have to be in these, these, these rooms with no windows and not see daylight and not see trees and grass and fear for their lives. So, you know, it's not about damning the prison system. It's just asking the question, can we not do it better? Yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of the change, I mean, if you took away everyone who is in prison for a drug-related offense, whether it's sales, the use, or the smugglers, you know, and you put them in a different prison, the violence and stuff would still be there. Because as you're talking to me and I'm listening, I'm trying to picture a model, you know, the change has to come from within. It's us inmates, us prisoners that decide when we're going to riot, when we're going to stop rioting, when we're going to allow the prison system to run smoothly. The same way I told you that when I go to prison, I decided to stop using drugs while I was in prison. 
I mean, if everybody had that mentality, you probably wouldn't end up going back to prison. But at the same time, you have to think about the aftercare. Once we're released back into the community, what the, what are resources, what resources are available to us? But going back into the prisons, I mean, if, if, if I can do it and I was a true righteous addict going into prison, but it's just as soon as I hit those, those cells, I was clean. So if I can do it, that's proof to me that it's change that has to come from within. Why couldn't everybody just think that way? You know, even though I was on those prison yards running and doing the stuff that I had to do to survive, I knew in the back of my mind that one day I'm going to be clean. But there were those times, you know, especially after having picked up my second strike here in California, I, I then my, my mind my way of thinking changed and I, then I started thinking, you know, what's going to be my third strike? I was no longer thinking, oh, oh I'm going to be good one day. I, I had already given up on that hope of changing because once I picked up that second strike, I was just waiting. What is my third strike going to be? You know, and I had already given up. Yeah, for those people. Even though I gave up on myself. Yeah, even though I gave up on myself, the only person that didn't give up on me was God because even my my even my parents gave up on me. They locked the doors, they changed the locks, they kicked me out. My first wife left me. Neighbors were afraid of me. You know, if I got in a two-block radius from where my parents lived, you know, people were calling my dad. Hey, I just seen him walking down the street. You know, I, I was bad. But it it has to come from the person because, you know, I and I have to speak for myself. It came from me. I was able to do it. So why can't everybody do it? If you have an environment where it's set up for people to succeed – and then you have someone that's motivated. Obviously, the, the end result is going to be that they're going to do well. Um, but if you have someone that's motivated in, a, in a, an environment where they're not set up to succeed, that creates more problems. So, you know, we have to look at both. We have to motivate the individuals to to believe that they can kick addiction or get out of a life of violence. But also, we have to look at the system, you know, because is that setting people up for success or failure? Yeah, the system has a lot to do with it because I know I shared with you yesterday my story of, of what happened to me after I went to school and got a truck driver's license. So I came home uh, came home from prison and, and it was a friend of mine who had also been out on parole who told me about the California Department of Vocational Rehab. And I went there to get interviewed to see what they can help me out with. Uh, I wanted to go to a truck driving school. So I qualified. I met the criteria of being currently on parole. And they were able to pay for my truck driving school. I got my uh, license. I got my CDL. And I found a job immediately, you know, driving a, a big rig. And the company that I, I was employed by uh, went all over California. It was uh, Golden State Trucking, I think it was. And they had contracts with Eggside Battery. And so I was driving from Northern California to Southern California, you know, all week long. And... Part of my parole uh, condition was to be able to drug test weekly and not being in Los Angeles County for most of the time because I was driving around up north. I was able to get the drug testing done in a parole office up in Stockton, I believe. But then the people at the Stockton parole office began to question, well, who's getting paid to supervise Michael Lopez? Is Stockton getting the money or is L.A. County getting the money? And so that became a big deal to uh, the state. And ultimately, my parole office here in Los Angeles decided to have me terminate my job 
because there was a matter of who's going to get the credit for drug testing me. And so I was really upset because, hey, I, I went to school. I did what I needed to do to get my license. I did what I needed to do to get a job. I've been drug testing for what? I don't know, six months clean. I'm working. I'm sending my money home to my wife, you know, while I'm out on the road. And now I have to quit because you guys are fighting over who's going to get the credit for drug testing me. So I remember calling my local representative at the time. Her name was Martha Escutia. And I presented my case to her. Um, and within a couple of days, I guess she contacted the parole office. And I don't know what she told them. But they called me back and said, okay, um, go ahead and get your job back. So I'm assuming she said, hey, you better give this guy's job back. I mean, he's on parole. He's doing great. Why would you interfere? So the system there, you know, over fighting over money was willing to let me fall again. You know, so the system that's designed to help me, I mean, they call themselves the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, but they weren't rehabilitating me. They were trying to make sure I failed again, but I did what I needed to do at that time. I made the calls to the right people and was able to get my job back, even though it didn't work out for me in the end. Ultimately, ultimately, you know, I did end up falling again, uh, going back to drugs, and I myself let my my uh, CDL expire because I knew that wasn't the profession for me any longer. I was now back on dope. Um, and you know, to have me high on crack driving a big rig over these highways was not safe for me or anyone. So I on my own let that expire. But just the fact that I did, I, I gave it an honest try and the system was the first to try to drag me down. I know. And I'm sure there's, there's some, great great people in prisons you know that are really bending over backwards to try and do good things and i know everyone listening that's a member of a police department or a fire department um is probably banging their head against a brick wall trying to implement things to make their departments better i know i did in, in my last place um but you know fundamentally if we have a prison system that's profit-based that may you know that people make money from having more prisoners that inherently seems like it's setting up for failure the same way as the country I come from. We had national health and, you know, where we are now in the States, it's a profit-based healthcare system. So people make money off sick Americans, you know, so yeah, that's all, that's all it is. It's all about the money. I mean, in the California prison system, you know, nowadays my last prison, uh, my last prison stint was 10 years ago. And, they now have something new to where back in the day, my my family can go to uh, the market and put me together a quarterly package of canned goods, of you know clothing, anything they wanted to send me, but that had a 30-pound weight limit. They can send me anything they wanted. Now, they can no longer do that. Families are forced to buy uh, from a certain catalog that I understand is uh, prison guard-owned. It's a prison guard-owned company. Um, to where you have to buy the packages from them. So it's it's all about the money. Yeah, yeah, and I think, like I said, just to be clear, I, my goal is for us to make people's lives better. You know, to be safer for the guards, to be an environment where you're not worried about being shanked, and you know that we have to reverse engineer some of the ways that we've done these things. Because again, I mean, if if you look. You don't have to be a, a genius statistician to see the trend, for example, in the prison population here 
to ask the question, this is not working. What what can we do that's different? I know that some prisons in America have already been to places like Norway and, and, and are starting to take elements of their system back. I think, um, was it Attica, I think was one of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, good for them. You know, that's what we need is innovators in these fields because we don't, you know, all we do when we lock up people and create the system is it make it more dangerous for the people in the cities and towns, the, the, the first responders. I mean, I've had paramedics that have been stabbed on this show, you know, police officers that have been, you know, attempt executions on. I mean, all kinds of things. So it's making the, the nation safer and then taking these little boys and girls that find their way through these these paths, especially if they were set up kind of for failure with some pretty shitty childhoods, and steering them back so they become, you know, doctors, lawyers, paramedics, police officers, whatever. So this isn't a demonizing of prisons and or saying that all prisoners are, you know, grew up this way and, and should be forgiven, but it's just how can we do it better? And when I talk to people like you and all the other guests that we've discussed this particular topic, as a regular member of society, it seems like there are elements we could do to reduce the number of people that even go to prison through, you know, marijuana, prostitution, things like that. Use models that are legalizing them. So all of a sudden these are just addicts or, you know, uh, prostitutes are actually in a brothel that's clean and, you know, they're not getting murdered like I've seen in my career. And, and, and then, you know, <laughs> use that money in, in psychological counseling and addiction counseling and job creation. So then we can steer this giant ship that's going the wrong way back to, to the way it should be going. Yes, definitely. I mean, you can't hardly, you can't find a drug rehabilitation center here in LA that has room because there's no funding for them. There's no space, there's no bed space available. But there's a lot of money available to keep building prisons. I don't understand that. I mean, people need help. You know, yes, uh, what is it? The uh, People are going to keep falling in their addiction, but it's part of recovery, you know. Uh, you're not going to get it right the first time. Uh, look at me. It took me 10 times to get it. I, I don't know how many times, but I got it. You know, it took me to run, to actually run out of gas to get tired of the lifestyle. But more resources need to be uh, available to people, to addicts. You know, to addicts, you you know, there's not enough drug rehabs. Yeah. Well, well, let's steer you out of the, the prison system. So tell me about that. Tell me about that moment where you made the decision to finally, you know, not only get off the path to of crime, but also addiction as well. So one day, um, let's see, 2006, I'm going to say somewhere maybe 2007 to uh, somewhere around there. I was in my living room watching television and a commercial came on the TV. And this is the honest to God truth. And a lot of people laugh when I say this story, but it, it, it's, it was my turning point. A commercial came on where the guy's on the TV and says, Hey, you, yeah, you just sitting right there. What are you going to do about your future? You know, time to go back to school, something like that. And so it caught my attention. And as I was reading the programs that were available at this certain school, youth advocate popped up and I was curious, youth advocate, what is that? And after doing the research, I pretty much translated it into being a gang counselor. Hey, I can do that. I know gangs, you know, and so I did the footwork to get enrolled in school. Uh, I went back to school and I did earn my bachelor's degree, ironically, in criminal justice because I set out to be a gang counselor. But 
through all the people, you know, that I met going to school, my, the idea of what I wanted to do changed so many times. And after graduating with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, I enrolled uh, to Argosy University in the city of Orange. And I uh, earned a master's degree in 2014, uh, a master's in forensic psychology. How I ended up in the, in, you know, the psychology field, I have no idea. I guess it was God's plan, but that's what I'm doing now with my bachelor's or uh, I'm sorry, my master's degree. I was able to land a spot with the Mental Health Association of Orange County. I'm a supervisor now. I supervise three advocates. And what we do is we advocate for patients who are on an involuntary hold on psychiatric units throughout Orange County. And um, there it is. You know, I'm back in the workforce. Um, I'm a supervisor at that. I mean, having after having been through everything I've been through, I'm now the guy that people fax their resumes to trying to get a job. You know, it amazes me. You know, I, I, I wish I can keep going to school. I, I can't afford to keep going to school. I'd like to earn, you know, a doctorate and maybe a social work. Or, or uh, criminal justice, but you know, I went back to school and I, I was amazed at the fact that I'm still teachable after everything I've been through, after everything I've done, everything I've seen, I'm still teachable. And I, I give all my, my thanks, you know, to God for, for, you know, having that master plan for me, even though I was blind all those years, but I'm still teachable. And so I've been, you know, uh, I'm going to be 52 I've had this current job for going on six years. As an adult, I've never had a job over 90 days. And that's the honest to goodness truth. I've always had a job, but I always lost them because I got caught stealing from my job or I got arrested somewhere down the line and lost those jobs. But when I made up my mind to go back to school or to stop, you know, that life, my mind was made up. I was tired. I ran out of gas. People say, what was your turning point? I probably missed a whole bunch of turning points, but it took me to running out of gas. I got tired of the lifestyle, man. I just, I threw in the towel. I'm good. I'm not going to beat the system. You know, and I lost a lot in my fire, you know, being in prison when mom died and, and all that kind of stuff, losing my first wife. I now have a relationship with my two older daughters. I get to go see my grandkids, but you know, it's I, I'm living life now. I do a lot of public speaking at you know local universities and colleges, and you know I tell these kids you know, that are in these classrooms, these students, you know, even though they're adults, I I still call them kids. Um, something that's big for me is in my back pocket. I have a debit card with my name on it, with my with a with a pin number that I set. I didn't hack it. I didn't steal it. It's my debit card, and even though I've only had it for six years, it's brand new to me, brother. It's brand new to me, and it's 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 amazing. You know, I have a checkbook with my name, and there's money in the bank account. My bills are paid. I'm not running from the law. I'm providing for my family. I care about the population that I serve. I've even started a nonprofit uh, called Mission Echo, a legitimate nonprofit where we feed the homeless on Skid Row, and I have the backing of the lowrider community nationwide. Many of us, many of us are convicted felons. But, you know, they see my cause, they see my mission, I've been loyal to it, and and we have grown in six years feeding the homeless on Skid Row in downtown LA. As a matter of fact, I think that's how you came across me. You saw the, the news segment that Channel 7 here in LA did. I did, I did. And I want to expand on, on Mission Echo in a moment, but I do want to get back just to something you said. So, with 
studying forensic psychology, um, did you, w- w- was that kind of a point where you um, realized that a lot of this addiction, a lot of the crime, even violence, um, you know, is, is, is attributed to a lot of, of uh, mental health issues? Um, because, because, I mean, from my perspective, you know, the, these drugs are basically filling voids in, in people's souls. Yes, and they're—I mean, even they're—they're they're even taking people's souls. You know, the stuff that I see is so heartbreaking. You know, driving up and down Skid Row, feeding homeless people, uh, advocating for these patients on these psychiatric uh, units. You know, it's—it's it's very sad thing. You know, and a lot of it is drug induced, and some of it is you know hereditary. But you know, to know that the drug induced ones can can still be saved. You know, you can be helped, and there's no help for them. Uh, or not enough help, not enough resources, you know. Um, it's just a sad thing to see. How I ended up in forensic psychology, I have no idea. I still ask myself today, you know, Lord, what was what were you thinking? You know, I, I never, ever in a million years thought I'd be doing what I'm doing right now. If you'd have told me in the 90s that, hey, in 2020, man, you're going to be clean, you're going to come across 10 years clean and sober and you're going to be a supervisor and you're going to be remarried and, and kids, I would have laughed at you because in the 90s, I was ready to throw in the towel waiting for that third strike to hit. You know, but my day my day came and I was just tired, brother. I, I was just tired, man. It's amazing. Well, you mentioned the uh, involuntary hold. So um, a few weeks ago, I think it was the beginning of December, my son actually got sent to a psych ward um he very long story short he had been getting going through some depression um and had basically been led through a visualization exercise by a teacher totally innocently and he started getting upset and basically he was triggered he, he was thinking about the beach and he, he'd had a kind of like a near drowning experience at the beach a while ago um he didn't actually nearly drown but he got pulled out by riptides and it scared the shit out of him um, but so he starts tearing up. He starts seeing some of these, you know, images of death and things. He tells the, the counselor he's sent to and they Baker Act him, which is in Florida when you send it to an involuntary hold for a child. Didn't fit any of the protocols for the school. And I mean, it was one of the worst two days of, no, no, absolutely the worst two days of my life. But just like you said, you couldn't get to your mother. It was reverse. I couldn't get to my son. I couldn't get my son out of this place. And um, it was awful. And so after this whole thing, and I got him out, I started researching. And I mean, not just in this county, in, in, in the state of Florida, there's a complete abuse of this in the school systems. And it's a kind of knee jerk from, I think, from the Parkland shooting that we had in South Florida in 2015. And these schools, and I, and it was, it was nauseating because I went all the way up the chain on both sides. The schools blamed the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department blamed the schools. And it was, it was disgusting because no one took ownership of, of this and no one said, no one was held accountable. No one, you could just make up the rules, send a child to a holding facility and totally, you know, no one would come after you. It, it was awful. And as I pulled the stats, I mean, not only were there, exponentially more kids sent to these facilities but my son's school was was reappearing over and over and over again and i'm not done with pursuing that for everyone listening um but so that i got to witness that very very recently through a child's eyes so when you said that that was what you kind of specialize in at the moment what is your um uh you know what have you witnessed with those holds 
children and adults through through your experience? Well, first of all, we I come across a lot of patients uh, who are homeless, and so many of these holds are written for patients who don't really need to be on an involuntary hold. I've come to find out that doctors don't always follow the protocol of offering the patient voluntary treatment. They just automatically write them uh, up on these 250s and place them on involuntary holds. I've also come across, you know, certain hospitals uh, in Orange County where certain police departments are often uh, putting people on 5150s just because they recognize them on the street. You know, uh, it's like a gang member. You know, I can be walking down the street and the cop who's arrested me five times will stop me and arrest me for something. Well, a lot of these police officers are doing the same thing in a certain city in in, in uh, Orange County where, you know, they recognize, hey, that's so-and-so. We put her on a 5150. She's out already. They'll pull over and put her on another bogus 5150. And then the doctor will automatically put it on a 5250, you know. So they're, it's the abuse of power. You know, that I'm seeing with my own eyes, you know, both by law enforcement and by by uh, hospital staff. Um, I do work on adolescent units on Mondays and Thursdays with kids who are in group homes, foster homes, uh, with a lot of issues, and I mean, sad, sad issues, sad, sad problems going on at home. Um, a lot of these kids just automatically being, you know, put on involuntary holds as well to where if you're already in a group home and there's therapeutic help there for you and, and you know, you have all these counselors, why, you know, why would they put you on an involuntary hold? Use the resources that are out there. I had a patient a few weeks back on an adolescent unit, a seven-year-old who was placed on an involuntary hold. Now, how am I supposed to walk into a hospital room and explain criteria of an involuntary hold to a seven-year-old. And you hear that age over and over again. Like you Google yes. that in any, anyone's county, there will be those stories. And, and, and the thing is, let me be very clear, that the 5150, the Baker Act, absolutely has a place for someone who is an immediate danger to themselves or others. But that's being interpreted, especially in the schools, as you even say the word kill or death or whatever, and then they're just, you know, literally locking these kids up. I'm like, hold on, time out. I mean, it says in their yeah. protocols very clearly, like, you need to separate between a kid talking, imagination, you know, lip service, and a, a threat, like a, a substantive threat. And that's not the case. And that what was sad is when my little boy was in there, when I went to visit him, there were two other kids from the same fucking school from the same school at the same time in this facility. And again, wow. you know, they, they, I didn't obviously get to talk to them. It was someone else's children, but you could tell that they were not in crisis. I've, I've been a medic for 15 years. I know what someone in crisis looks like. These kids were, you know, quiet and reading. And then when their parents, they were teary eyed, you know, when their parents came to visit. And that's the thing is, is just like I said, making this country better is I think I get the knee jerk after these, these shootings and, you know, the, the, the violence that we see, but the pendulum seems to have swung the complete other way. And, and the, the sad thing is the people that need to be there, now we're diluting the services in these, these facilities because they're sending everyone there. And the people that are truly in crisis, that are suicidal or, or you know, homicidal, yeah. not getting the attention that they need now. 
No, not at all. Because the school, especially in schools, I mean, everyone's worried about you know uh, being sued for not recognizing something ahead of time. It's a liability. So everyone's you know running to the use of the fifty-one fifty to cover it up uh, and to hopefully let someone else figure it out. But at the same time, you're hurting the people you're supposed to be trying to help. 5150 is pretty deep. It's pretty deep to be put on a 5150, let alone a 5250, because you're scarring that child. You know, you're exposing that child to a, a righteous psychiatric unit to where they're, they're mixed with kids who really, really need to be there. But now you've scarred these kids who didn't really need to be there. And so you're putting them on that path. Absolutely. And then, like you said, with, with, with the foster system, you know, and, and again, again, there are some amazing facilities out there. I'm just picking on the ones that, yes. that aren't, you know, but we've got yes. to take a step back and remember that when you and I went to school, and I've spoken about this a few times, all we had to worry about at school was a fire alarm. And I don't know about you, but that never triggered me. I never had visions of me burning to death in a school. It was just a fun way of getting no. out of class for 30 minutes. Yes. And I will, I will admit, I pulled a few of those fire alarms like pranks. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, that's all we had to worry about. Yeah. Now know? they have drills where they have to pretend someone's coming in to murder them. And my little boy's been through two actual code reds where they genuinely thought someone was in the school, coming to the school. And you telling me that that's not sending these kids on edge? So you've got them you know, going through that. Then you, you literally are shipping them off in police cars every time they even show any emotion whatsoever and and it's it's terrible we need to pull the reins back on some of these you know these knee-jerk um holds because like you said it, it is damaging the kids and it's also you know uh clogging up these facilities for the people that absolutely need them so and what's yeah, sad is when, when i talked about this you mentioned the foster homes that's what i was told i had either one of two things parents told me oh it happened to my child so i pulled them out of school and I say, well, did you do anything about it? No, I just moved schools. Or other people told me so many kids that it happens to are, like you said, from foster systems and things where they don't have anyone to advocate for them. So yes. it's time that, you know, I mean, you're already doing it and that's, that's amazing. But in this area that someone needs to stand up and be like, what the hell are we doing here? You know, because they're just getting away with it. And I know it's not malicious. I know these teachers aren't waking up, you know, just planning to to mess up some child's mind, but at the same time, until someone calls them on it, it's not going to change. Yeah, no one's held, no one's being held accountable for what they're doing. They're just passing the buck and locking the kids up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, you mentioned Mission Echo, so let's transition to that. Um, I, I love the story of of how that first started with with your um, with the donuts, and then um, lead me through yeah. how where you are now. <laughs> the donuts. So. What happened was six years ago when I when I first started working the job that I'm currently doing, I was really exposed to uh, the homeless population in Orange County. Even though I I I I dabbed a little bit because my addiction took me to being homeless, not for very long, but long enough to say, "Wait a minute, what the hell am I doing here?" And so when I started working for the Mental Health Association of Orange County, being exposed big time to Skid Rose in Orange County. And that population. One Saturday, I talked to my wife and I said, "Hey, let's you know go out and buy some coffee and donuts and pizza and and, and let's go out to Civic Center in, in Orange County." And so that's what we did. You know, I bought fifteen pizzas and I think like ten dozen donuts, something like that. I bought myself my own industrial coffee maker and and we bought an igloo and we filled it up with coffee. And my wife and I 
and my seven-year-old daughter at the time and my five-year-old son at the time, we went out to Civic Center in Orange County and, and gave out all this coffee, pizza, and donuts. And what I did was I you know, posted a couple of pictures of what we were doing for the day uh, on Instagram. And, you know, I also told you that I DJ on the weekends for lowrider car shows. So a lot of my Instagram followers who are car club members, they started chiming in with, hey, Mike, the next time you go out, let me know. And our car club will donate 10 pizzas. Our car club will buy the coffee and the creamer and the cups. Our car, our car club will do this and this. And it, that that baby just took off. It's grown so big. I've received so much support from the lowrider community nationwide um, to where we are now feeding 1,200 people twice a year. I hold a big event once in June and once in December. We're going into our sixth year of feeding the homeless people on Skid Row in L.A. because I live in L.A. And 100% of my funding comes from donors, from lowrider car clubs, from ex-felons, from ex-gang members. Um, from you know people like you who saw my story, who are now follow, following our Mission Echo Instagram, who PayPal a donation, Zen, uh, Zelle, Venmo, and stuff like that. And you know it was one of those deals, like you heard in my story. I you know I asked God, man, clean me up, and and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so He was faithful to His. He cleaned me, cleaned me up. But he sent me back to Skid Row. <laughs> you know, different capacity. I'm doing something different. But that's the job that he had for me. And and let me tell you, when it comes to serving these homeless people, I do it wholeheartedly. I do it with a joy. And here I go tearing up again. <laughs> I, I, I love these people. I mean, they're people. It's none of our business why they're homeless. We all know why they're there. I know why I was there. Some people are drug addicted. Some people are lazy and just want to be there. Some people are mentally ill. It doesn't matter, man. It's only food. You know, and so I thank God that I'm no longer there. And I thank God for those people who were out feeding us. And so now I'm part of a group of people who I won't forget those people in the struggle. As an addict, I know what it's like to want to be clean so bad. You just can't fucking get it, but you're a hair away. Don't stop trying. And, you know, like my day finally came. I know those people's days are going to come for some, you know, but we started, uh, I, I've been feeding the, you know, the people with, with the help from my Instagram followers for six years. But in June of 2019, I finally went nonprofit. We filed for a, a nonprofit uh, organization. It's called Mission Echo. And ECHO stands for Ex-Cholo Helping Others. Now, the story behind that, my friend, is in 1995, I was in a prison cell, and I had just come back from, and I don't remember if I came back from church or one of these self-help group motivator, you know, motivational speakers, but I remember going back to my cell being fired up, thinking, one day, man, one day I'm going to be good. I'm going to get this thing called life, and I want to come back and help people the way these tattooed convicted felons just came into this prison to help us and then they get to go you know go home tonight i want to do that same thing and so what do we you know what do we have to do in our prison cells other than think nothing so i'm thinking and thinking and thinking and you know what would i call my program and i came up with echo ex cholo helping others but at the same time i want the example that we're setting to echo on and on and on and for everyone to do a little tiny part 
And it has caught on, my friend. You know, we're going to be having a uh, Feed the Homeless event in Las Vegas. Uh, we're working on a Feed the Homeless uh, event in Northern California. People, my Instagram followers are reaching out. Hey, Mike, we want to branch off to what you've started in L.A. And that's the point of Echo. And everybody's in because everybody sees that I've been true. Everybody sees that when I ask you to PayPal a donation, they know exactly where their money is going because I've had volunteers come from Vegas, from uh, Stockton, from Phoenix, from all over California to come and volunteer their day to feed the homeless. And then they go back and tell their people, wow, man, Mike's feeding a whole bunch of people. It's not me. It's everybody together. You know, and so this thing that started out with coffee, pizza, and donuts has just gone, I mean, viral pretty much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think it's amazing. And I think what's inspiring is you know, where you came from as well. And I think that is a beacon of hope to, like you said, people that are struggling, whether it's addiction, whether it's being, you know, on a road of crime, whatever it is. That, you know. Whatever it is. Yeah. The, the, like you said, the men that came into your prison that, that talked to you. And then yeah, now you're that guy, you know, and I think that not only are you feeding them, but you're also showing people, well, look, you, you know, this doesn't define you. Just because this is where you are today doesn't mean that's going to be who you are in five years from now. Exactly. You know, who would have thought that I was going to have a master's degree? I, w <laughs> I wish my mom could have seen me walk that stage with my master's degree. Who would have thought that I'd have it? But I have it. And now, you know, I'm using it. And not only that, I'm just using, I'm just so grateful that, you know, at, at, at a, a new life that I'm not going to forget the people in the struggle. I mean, there's people out there barefooted. There's people out there with only a pair of shorts on. There's, you know, I mean, you were in Orange County. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And that shouldn't be happening. Those are people. That's somebody's mom, somebody's dad. Okay, so they've made the wrong decision. Who hasn't? It doesn't matter the magnitude, but they're you know, there's people suffering and we should be out there. Those of us who can uh, be out there helping, you know, sacrifice a 12 pack or sacrifice a drink at Starbucks and donate those five bucks to our nonprofit. And I will take your money and go out and feed the homeless people. If you don't have the time to do it, I will do it for you. You know, so we, again, I've had so much support with this, um, nonprofit and, and our mission and, and you know God's blessed it and it's caught on look it reached you all the way in Florida <laughs> yeah he did indeed <laughs> now how many um when, when you when you're meeting all these homeless men and women are you seeing a large um portion of them as veterans as well um the, the to be honest I'm sure there are a lot of veterans out there I'm sure there are I don't know if they're veterans unless they share their story with me. And I will say that I have come across a lot of story of, of veterans, of veterans out on Skid Row. Yeah. Because, I mean, again, the, the, the knee jerk of the, uh, let's say, less altruistic people out there is, you know, the get a job using the word bomb and all these things, which I fucking hate that word. Um, but. And again, you have to take a step back and, and look at these men and women. And I, I use this example all the time. Go go way back. Go to when they were toddlers. You honestly think that their dreams were one day to live under a bridge, you know, to beg yeah. for money. You know, and people are like, oh, they're probably going to use it on drugs. Do you, I mean, even if they did, do, do, would you think they chose to stand next to a red light 
you know, hoping that you might roll down your window and, you know, throw a core at them. No, of course they didn't. No. And then you're no. right. And you have to be part of the solution. How do you cure homelessness in this country? You give a shit. You, you start, you know, dealing with the mental health issues, the addiction issues, you know, and, yes. and then, you know, that way they're not going to be on the street. They're going to be paying taxes and, you know, working alongside you. So it's, it, I hate it when you hear of, you know, Oh, they drove the homeless to out of their town to the other town or, you know, we, we see yeah. this a lot in our community, you know, the law enforcement and not picking on them. It's, it's a systemic problem, but we have to view these people as human beings, as men and women. And just like you said, there, but by the grace of God, go I. If I had made a shitty decision, it could be me, you know, covered in dirt, wearing, you know, like you said, barefoot, begging for food. Yeah. You know, um, we have to care, like you said. That's how we're going to fix this problem. We can't wait for the politicians to do it because they only care during election time. We are out there. You can go to Skid Row in downtown LA at any time of the day, any day of the weekend. There's a nonprofit out there giving church or feeding the homeless or providing help. Providing help. But there's not enough people giving help. There's not enough, there aren't enough resources out there. Uh, for for mental health issues, there's not enough resources out there for education or or uh, housing, you know, stuff like that. There's just not enough. Yeah, you know, you see on the news that these companies are are providing these little mini homes that they're going to be putting under, you know, the overpass of a freeway. But just because you get them off the sidewalk doesn't mean the problem is gone. That person needs drug rehab or mental health rehab or a job or whatever it is. Just get them off the sidewalk isn't fixing the problem no it's, more, uh, that, more has to be done exactly it's it's a give a man a fish versus teach a man a fish you know you exactly you just, you just just give him a meal and that's it then it's you know not solving anything but like you said if you're able to then direct them into counseling and, and i know the tiny homes that i told you about was a um a group of veterans that are doing it in the midwest and they they do that they they help kind of filter them into counseling they they you know get them job creation they they help buy a suit so they can go to their interview and then that house is their address which is another vicious circle i know a lot of people that are homeless get into like it's hard to to be to have all the paperwork in place to be employable when you don't even have an address exactly you know even if, even a cell phone you know i know it's hard because so many of people abuse the resources that are given to them. And there's nothing we can do about that. You know, what I mean by is that these, you know, phones, uh, um, people here in LA or California call them Obama phones, but the phones that are given out to the homeless people, yes, a lot of people do use them to continue their drug dealing business. And yes, a lot of people do use them to, you know, keep contact with family, you know, but what are you supposed to do? You can't not help the people that are, accepting the help just because there's someone abusing it, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes um, perfect sense. Karma. Karma will come in and take care of whoever's supposed to th- you know, be taken care of. But uh, I don't know. It's just it, it's really sad to see people suffering, truly suffering, whether it was a decision they made or not, they're suffering. So, you know, again, I say to the people, if you can help, please help. You know, every once in a while on my Instagram, like once, twice a week, I'll, I'll post up, hey, can you buy a cheeseburger for a homeless person today? And so many people will take a picture of it and, and hashtag uh, it's only food or hashtag everybody's got to eat, which is one of our hashtags, you know, to show, hey, we did it. We're helping. It's not that, you know, then you got the people who are saying, well, if you're going to help the homeless, leave the cameras at home. 
No, no, it's not about that. It's about, you know, I grew by posting pictures of what I did and look what happened. Yeah. You're going to get negative comments from the people who aren't donating a penny. You're going to get comments from the people who aren't lifting a finger to help, you know? So if you're, again, you're not going to be part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem because it's through pictures that mission echo exists today. It's through pictures that you found me. Yep. Exactly. You know? and, and so, and, that, and I, th- I think that's just it. You know, I, I make this point as well. Like, you see some of these horrendous videos of you know bullying or something they'll they'll get watched a lot but then when you see yes. these acts of kindness usually it's, it's someone you know filming there was the one in um, new york recently where they lifted the suv off the pedestrian that was run over yes you know that yeah, goes viral because that. people want to see good things now if you're the only person there filming well this person's bleeding to death you should probably put your damn phone down and help but you know in that situation yeah. people were like oh why didn't they help and the reality was this person was across the street and there were so many people on that car, there wouldn't have been space to help anyway. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, I mean, I think that people need to see that. And of course, we're aware of the guys that want to be YouTube famous that film themselves giving a homeless person a dollar. And then the whole video is about the person, not the, not the, not the, yes. The, but that doesn't yeah, matter. It's, no, it's those kinds of people that hurt what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I can say hurting because, you know, my my nonprofit has been able to grow support wise. But those people, before you know, it, they'll get tired of taking their little selfie, helping the person that they're helping, and then it'll stop. But again, my mission has gone on for six years because I've been true to it, and everyone gets involved. You know, little league baseball teams come out to volunteer. You know, uh, schools come out to volunteer. You know, just so many people. I've had doctors from Kaiser on my front lawn helping roll breakfast burritos. I think that's the ultimate, man. You know, hey, when, you know, one of the students that I would it, that was in a crowd at East LA College where I was speaking was an RN at a Kaiser. She, you know, latched on to my nonprofit and she pulled some doctors from Kaiser to come on out and help us feed the homeless. And they were like, wow, this is great. You know, look what an ex-cholo did. Look what an ex-crack addict is doing now, you know. People, I mean, everything is transparent. You know, I I let people know how much money was raised at a certain event. You know, if you PayPal me or or Venmo me a a $20 donation or a $400 donation, your receipt is going up on our Instagram. You know, Um, it's grown because it's real, man. You know, it's it's great. I, I wake up in the morning, you know, how can I, you know, fundraise today? How much can I raise today? You know, and, and. It's like a challenge to me. What else can I do? Because we started out with coffee, pizza, and donuts. Now we're doing coffee, pizza, donuts, burritos, chicken, soda, water, toilet tissue, beanies, gloves, socks, bananas, pastries. You know, it has grown because of pictures. And the people benefiting are, you know, the people on Skid Row. Absolutely. And you mentioned as well about the abuse. I wanted to make sure we talked about this as well. You hear that a lot. Oh, if I, you know, as I said before, if I give it to them, they're just going to buy alcohol, or whatever. And and people, we we have a, a habit for some reason of focusing on that. You know, um, when you when you think about government assistance, oh, there's these people that you know. It happens in England. That there are cases where yes, there are people that you know get these free houses and all this this stuff, while other people um, are getting nothing. Yeah. But the reality is, those are the exceptions to the rules, and those shit bags exist. All the way up the chain. And you look in the business world, 
how many cases are there of people stealing people's pension funds and not paying taxes and you know so yeah, but it's always Wall aimed, Street. Yeah, it's always aimed at the the poor, and it's like no, that 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 type of human element is all the way up. So if you're going to start saying that, well, then you better start chatting about these big companies too. So yeah, yeah definitely. No, so you have to lead by example, and, and like you said, be the change, and 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 not be put off helping because of the off chance that you might be helping the one person who's a turd because the reality is there's much greater chance that you're going to help someone in that moment of kindness may even be may even be that moment where they go that was it i'm going to change today you never know exactly you know you have no idea you might be someone's answer to what they've been praying for but if you're afraid of losing that dollar you just killed someone's blessing you know so what i tell people you know, and my wife knows and, and, you know, close friends that know me, I won't give you a nickel. I won't give you a quarter, but come on in. Let's go inside. I will buy you 10 Big Macs. Eat two now and you have eight for later. If that makes sense. Yep. You no, know, it does. Absolutely. If you're walking into, you know, some place to eat and someone, hey, can I get a buck? No, I don't have a dollar. Stop lying. You have a dollar. But why don't you offer a breakfast instead? And you'll feel really good about yourself. You also help someone else. And like you just said, that might be that person's last time ever asking for help because now you've inspired them to get up and go. Because it happens. That's how it happens. That's how it happens, my friend. Exactly. And then going, and going back to your example with the football team, if you guys had just you know, gone down a different route and played as a team and then come together and done something positive, imagine – the effects that would have yeah. on the world. So yeah, it's it's yeah. kindness versus unkindness at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I just uh, now that we're on back to the football team, I want to point out on the days of our big events when we feed the twelve hundred people, eleven hundred people, somewhere around there, we meet at my house in the morning, starting at five a.m., cooking a whole bunch of chopped hot dogs and scrambled eggs, and make uh, about eleven hundred breakfast burritos. But one of the guys that volunteers to come to help grill the weenies and the eggs is a rival gang member of ours. I have three guys that show up to help cook. One of them is my homeboys, which is, you know, I've grown up with them since elementary, who was, who was from my gang, who is now a successful caterer. One guy is a, a truck driver who answered the call when I said, hey, I need someone to volunteer their time with a grill. He showed up. And then my buddy Julio, who, you know, we've known each other since elementary, but technically he is a rival gang member. You know, he's an army veteran now. Uh, but we talk and laugh about old times, you know, Hey, remember when we chased you this way and remember when we did that and, you know, but we're doing, you know, different things now we're both, you know, both of us helping the community, people change, hashtag people change, you know, and it, it, it's a beautiful thing to see, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see 80 people show up at my house, people that only saw a video on Instagram to where I was asking for volunteers to come and help make 1100 breakfast burritos and they come they come in flocks an ex-cholo did that you know an ex-crack addict is organizing all of this you know and and people love i mean there's good in everybody they just need to be inspired to to release that goodness absolutely it just happens to be me the ex-cholo the ex-crack addict the ex you know con you know call me what you will just don't call me late for dinner but come and help us, <laughs> you know, come, come and help us, man. You know, sure. You, you know, bring everybody, you know, we're having another event Saturday, March 28th on Skid Row. We're going to be feeding the homeless potluck style. 
So everybody that's coming out truly wants to be there because they've all offered to cook a meal. And so we're preparing to feed anywhere between two and 300 people potluck style, my friend. I'm not going to buy it, any of the food this time. It's all being donated by people who want to be there. And that's even more beautiful that people are getting up to cook for 50 people, you know, and that's all going to add up to about 300 people being served, you know, but it's by people who want to come on out. Amazing. All right. Well, then let me get to this, this part too. If people listening now are inspired and, and want to donate, want to help, want to show up on, on March 28th, um, how do they find you on social media or on the internet? So our Instagram is mission underscore echo. That's where they can find me on Instagram. Um, you can contact me through there. Uh, if you want to make a, uh, a donation, a financial money donation, our Venmo account is Mission Echo, and Echo is all capitalized. The PayPal is the same thing, Mission Echo, uh, and it's all capitalized. Just the Echo part is capitalized. Currently working on a Zelle. Uh, like I told you, I'm not very tech savvy, my brother. And so I, it's taken so many people to help me try to figure this damn thing out to where, you know, the donations now get linked to those accounts and those accounts are now linked to the direct bank account for Mission Echo. Uh, and it's taken me forever to try to figure this out. You know, you 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 saw you freaked me out this morning when you said, you, you know, you need headphones. Like, oh, my God, where do I plug them into? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a tech savvy guy, man, but. You know, so many volunteers, so many people have reached out. Hey, Mike, I can help you, you know, set this up account, you know, set that account up and link it and this and that. You know, our uh, website is being built as I speak. My uncle's a web designer in San Francisco. So we do have a website. It's uh, mission, uh, let me see, missionecho.org. It's being designed as we speak. But if people who are listening in the LA area, Orange County, Riverside, if you want to get involved, uh, I can give out my phone number here, correct? Uh, yeah, if you'd like. Okay, so my phone number, uh, prank callers are invited to come on out to. My phone number is area code 323-557-2854. My name is Michael Lopez. And if you'd like to come on out, please call me. Let me know what your family can put together. That way I don't have, you know, 20 families all bringing spaghetti. You know, give me a call. Let me know what you want to do. We're aiming to feed two to three hundred people, but if more food shows up, hey, we'll feed a thousand if we can. You know, everybody's got to eat. That's our that's our um, our mission statement. Everybody's got to eat. You know, it's none of our business why they're homeless. It's only food. Uh, you know, please help me. Please help me feed the homeless. And if you make a donation, I promise you, your money is going to Skid Row. You you can see the pictures up on my uh, Instagram. Uh, we're currently working on a Facebook. Uh, a Mission Echo Facebook. Uh, we have hats available for a $35 donation. You know, people love our hats. It has our logo um, on the front of the cap and then on the side of the cap, it's got embroidered. It says everybody's got to eat. That's our hashtag. Um, you know, and thank you everybody who, who is going to be able to reach out to us for March 28th. If not, our big event is coming Saturday, June 20th. That's one of the two big ones that we do throughout the year where we feed close to 1,200 people. And if I get so much, uh, you know, if, if I get a whole lot more support this time around and we feed 1,500, then it's 1,500, you know, but I want your donors or your followers to know that if you send money, it's going exactly to where I'm telling you it's going, you know, and it's, 
such an honor to be trusted with people's money nowadays. You know, it's, I, I wasn't that guy back, you know, back 20 years ago. <laughs> well, I wasn't either. I'll tell you, I was a little, little thief myself when I was, uh, my late teens. So I, I mean, from my parents, okay. not anyone else, but even so, same thing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to go to some closing questions, but one more, uh, element you reminded me. So you mentioned the uncle helping design the webpage. You had uh -huh. an un uncle with uh, Long Beach Fire as well. Yeah. My uncle Harold, he lives in Long Beach. He's retired Long Beach Fire Department captain. Um, my favorite uncle, he's always been my friend. Oh, I hope my web designer uncle didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized, oops. <laughs> But uh, the uncle that's helping me design the webpage, he's my age, so I consider him more of a brother. I'm 20 days older than he is. But my uncle Harold has always been there for me through thick and thin, uh, no matter how bad I did. Um, you know, he he unconditionally, you know, continued to love me and, and guide me. And now that my mom is gone, she's been gone for 10 years. He's like my last official link to my mom because my grandma just passed away. Uh, we just celebrated a year of her passing. And so... My uncle Harold in Long Beach, want to say I love you. I wonder if he's listening. Um, I'll turn him on to it. He might already be listening. Who knows? He's retired uh, from the Long Beach Fire Department. Harold Bassler. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of good um, guests on here for retirees too. So hopefully, uh, if he isn't listening already, there'll, there'll be some other episodes besides this one that he'll be interested in. Sounds good. Brilliant. All right. Sounds so. Good. First of the closing questions, uh, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I don't read much. I try to read. I, now that as I'm speaking, you have me looking over at my desk and there's four books that are all half read. <laughs> um, there is a book that stands out. Let me walk over to it. There is a book that stands out, and it's, well, I don't know if it's appropriate for this one, but it's called The Black Hand. Uh, it's about the Mexican mafia. There's just something about that book. Uh, I won't say any more about that one, but it, it's, it truly exposes it. You know, it's written by Chris Blatchford, who was a Channel 11 reporter, and it's talked about um, Rene Enriquez, you know, who, who at one time was the top of the Mexican mafia, but why he made the change. Uh, another book that stands out is called Always Running. It's by Luis Rodriguez, who has a similar story to mine, and he's still out, you know, helping people. You know, so those are two books that I, I, I would recommend that I, that I like. One that's, you know, a story a lot more, a lot more wild and detailed than mine. And then um, you have the one by Luis, Always Running, which Brilliant. is a pretty good book. And I haven't heard either of those two recommended, so thank you. That's two new ones for me. I will put them on my list, um, and I'll, half re I'll, I'll, I'll read the other half, then we can compare notes. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. I was recently given a book, actually, by Father Greg Boyle. I don't know if you've ever heard of Father Greg Boyle. I think I've he's reached out to him. He's the one that… Yeah, that... he's the, the founder of Homeboy Industries. Yes. Yeah, he's someone I'd love to and, get on, actually. Yeah, so someone gave me a book, his first book, actually. I think it's called Tattoos on the Heart, something like that. I haven't started reading it yet, but it was given to me by a lady who owns a Mexican restaurant here in Huntington Park called uh, El Ranchito. And she, their whole staff as well, saw me on the news. And I've been going to that restaurant since I was a baby. I, you know, I was brought up in that restaurant. And so when I walked in one day, it's like the whole staff 
applauded me when I was walking in because they didn't know what I was doing now. You know what I mean? They were unaware of what I was doing now. And so she was really happy. The owners were really happy for me. Excellent. So that was pretty cool. Brilliant. Yeah. Like I said, I've, I've seen some of the stuff that he did and uh, that seems like another person that would be a interesting interview. Definitely. If you can get a hold of him, because I hear he's booked. <laughs> There's a waiting line to, to book Father Greg Boyle to talk about homeboy industries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will see. We will see. Um, <laughs> okay. So then the next question, is there a movie that you love? My favorite movie of all time, I have to say, is probably um, Last of the Mohicans. There's just something about that last scene where they battle on the edge of the mountain. Yeah, Chimney and, Rock in you know, uh, North Carolina. Yeah, there you go. You know, a dad comes to avenge his son. Uh, there's just something about that scene, about the music, uh, you know, the violins. It's just, I, I'm now I'm looking at my DVD stack. I have that movie in my DVD stack. I guess probably my second best would be a tie between Apocalypto and Gladiator. And then Tombstone is right there. <laughs> I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah. <laughs> and then is there a documentary? A documentary? No, nothing that, uh, nothing at the top of my head. Although I did mention to my wife last night, 13th, which yes. was, uh, you know, you recommended that one to me yesterday. And I've had so many people tell me about that. Oh, like I told you, my Uber riders, I've had several Uber riders cause I do part-time Uber, um, They've recommended that documentary. I just, you know, I haven't made the time to, you know, to sit down. If I'm on, you know, if I'm watching TV, it's usually the news because I, I'm, I'm busy all the time. I, I volunteer at the Long Beach Shortstop Program. It's a diversion uh, program for juveniles. Um, plus, I public speak. Plus, I have my regular job. Plus, I Uber. Plus, I DJ on the weekends. And so, I'm a very busy guy. Um, I don't have t too much time for television, but I'm going to try to find the time to see, uh, to watch 13th and then I'll let you know what I thought about it. Yeah. I would say, I mean, it's definitely 90 minutes well spent. There's a lot of crap out there, but I think that's a very, very well done. And it just, it just plants some seeds in your mind, plants some questions. Like, like I said, okay. can we do this better? You know, it was, with some of the, these systems founded on less than, uh, altruistic principles. And I think the answer is going to be no on some of those. So. All right, then next question. Is there a guest, or sorry, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and every other human being on planet Earth? A guest that I would... Um, sure, I got one for you. There it is. My friend, Tony Argot, who is a uh, retired L.A. County Sheriff's Department captain, who I met Tony Argot. He was the program director at Westwood College when I was working on my bachelor's degree. And him and I, we didn't hit it off very well as, you know, when we first met because I didn't like the way he interrupted class. And he jokes about that now and it's really funny. But we have become friends. And I mean true friends. Ten years ago when I paroled from prison for my last time, I needed help gathering a deposit to be able to rent a place for my wife and my kids so I can get up on my feet. Uh, my family wasn't quite on board with me yet 10 years ago. And my friend Tony Argot, re retired sheriff's department captain, loaned me the money that I, uh, you know, to rent the house that I currently still rent in the city of Bell. And we have lunch once every two months or so. 
we, you know, maintain contact by phone. He's always checking up on me. He was, te- he was uh, an instructor at East LA College. So I used to go guest speak at his classes. And um, I'm sure he'll have some wild stories to tell you. And I'm sure he'll use me as an example of, you know, people can change if they put their mind to it. Um, I will talk to him probably sometime this week because we're due for lunch. I will mention you. And if I can, I'll pass on his information if he's interested. Please. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to have obviously yeah. law enforcement background anyway, I've had a lot of people from from police and sheriff's departments on here. But um, yeah, the, the okay. crossover of, of seeing people that have, you know, you were you were cuffing one day and then you're helping feed the helping homeless the next. Your, yeah, there you go. You're, you're loading them rent money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I paid them back. <laughs> I paid them back. But, you know, he's, I mean, it's an honor to call him friend, you know, because first of all, who he is and, and what he used to do. And, you know, the fact that I was able to earn favor, you know, from someone like that. And like I'm saying, he does on his own maintenance checkups on me. You know, he'll call, hey, what's up, local? How you doing, man? What's going on? You know, what's the update? You know, he's enjoying his first grandbaby. Um, so he's pretty wrapped up. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend Tony Argot. Excellent. Well, thank you. All right. So then the last question before I let you go, what do you do to decompress when you're not doing all these jobs and, and all these altruistic projects? You know, that's a good question. I, I, and that's an easy one. I don't decompress as often as I need to. Uh, it's caused some, uh, you know, it's caused some conditions with me, but if I did decompress, it would just be sitting down listening to music. I listen to different types of music, but I have to learn how to, I have to learn the fact that I need to decompress sometimes because I'm going, 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 going all the time. My mind doesn't stop. I, you know, I'm either in my head planning something for the homeless or planning the next fundraiser or flashing back on prison or flashing back on gang violence, or flashing back on a day in school, my mind doesn't stop. And so I'm trying to figure out how to balance, uh, how to balance that because I, I can see sometimes it's just overwhelming to me. I don't know how to decompress. There you go. That's my perfect answer. Right. And I need to learn how. I need to learn how. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's you know, a struggle for a lot of people i one of my real buy-ins was a, an app you can get on your phone called headspace and it's just a, headspace it's called it's a literally a 10 minute um meditation and it, it, there's a guy talking so it's not even you're not sitting cross-legged humming you, you can just sit on the chair or lie on the bed um and i think you can try it i believe for 10 days for free as well but that I'm was it check that out yeah you I know mean, i'm 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 at a point i mean i'm gonna be 52 and i know it's not old probably you know to a lot of your listeners saying, oh, you're, you're a youngster, you know, but I'm, I'm getting to that age to where I, I, I need to learn how to, how to create my peace of mind. Because I feel that if I'm not doing something for somebody, I'm not doing anything at all. But at the same time, I need to learn that I do need some me time, you know, some family time. And, I, and I'm learning, you know, last weekend I was in Vegas with my a three-year-old granddaughter and I loved it. And I'm thinking, wow, that would be nice to be able to get more time like that. How do I do it? How do I, you know, make time for me to decompress? And so I need to learn how. And I, I, I thank you for bringing that up to me. No problem. Yeah, it definitely helped me. And what I found as well is, is fascinating is that there are a lot of us when, you know, when there are, uh, you know, mental 
challenges or stress, whatever you want to call it, that that void, again, that mental health void, we fill with work. And I know that I know, you know, many, many firefighters that do that, they take up extra shifts. I think it's so they don't have to be present and address the things that are going on. So I think it's very healthy to to do that, to take time for yourself. And I think it makes you more efficient too. When you, when your mind is clearer, you're able to get more done in less time. So you don't need as many hours. So you can be present with your grandchildren, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Brilliant. All right. So I, I was about to let you go, but there's one more thing that I forgot that we need to talk about. Oh, gastric bypass. Yeah, I have plenty of time. Oh, my gastric bypass. So actually what I had was a gastric sleeve. Right. The uh, my doctor recommended the gastric bypass, but I asked him, you know, how much more beneficial would that be to me? Uh, not much more beneficial, but the risk factors of as far as you know, uh, healing were a little more uh, serious. So I chose the gastric sleeve. I've had the gastric sleeve. I think it's been about two years, and I've I'm down about 115 pounds. I still have probably another hundred to go, but um, I love it. You know, I, oh, I know where we're going with this. <laughs> I told you yesterday, I'm probably the only Mexican in LA that doesn't eat tortillas. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That's, I, I, I remember it and you got a big kick out of that yesterday. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't eat tortillas. Um, I can, if I want to, the doctor says, but I've learned how not to, you know? And so I have one occasionally. You know, my wife will look at me like, damn, that's it. Just one. Yeah, I'm cool with just one. I don't need five or six anymore, you know. Um, but I've lost a lot of weight. I feel a whole lot better. I have more energy to play with my 10-year-old son. Um, you know, I had to do it. I had a heart attack about five years ago. Uh, and by the grace of God, I'm here. You know, I had a friend pass away mm, probably five or six days ago. 41 years old, his first heart attack. And every time I have a friend that, you know, passes away from a heart attack, I like, Lord, you know, why, why did you save me? You know, why? I mean, I was a drug addict. I was the criminal, but you saved me, you know, and sometimes it answers myself. Well, because he, he still needs me. Who would be feeding the people on, on Skid Row if I was gone, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this gastric sleeve surgery, it was life changing. I was afraid. I was afraid to do it because, you know, Kaiser sends you to classes first. They educate you first. And one of the very first things that the doctor on the very first night of class said was that 1% of the people don't get up from the table. I said, oh, that was me right there. That's been the story of my life. I got up and walked out of class and I never went back. A year later, I had a heart attack. Uh-oh, I better try to have that surgery. I'm either going to die on the table or die of a heart attack. So I didn't die on the table, and here I am. <laughs> yeah. You know? And it's so good to hear. The reason I wanted to ask you about that is obviously with this project, I talk a lot about exercise and nutrition and all these things. But I've, you know, my my wife's best friend, she had, I think she, did she have a bypass? She might have had some sort of sleeve as well. Um, and, you know, she lost the weight and, and is, is loving it. And I think through that process, she found herself eating better because she didn't want to, you know, stick a whole bag of tortilla chips in her mouth anymore you know whatever that that she was yeah. eating before well um, don't get her don't get us wrong we do want to stick a whole bag of tortilla <laughs> chips we just, just can't, can't brother. <laughs> we, we just can't man you know um uh, another thing that i found about it is that like i told you yesterday i my whole life is on instagram and so i was shocked at the amount of people 
who saw me have the surgery, who reached out with questions, who were considering it, who were afraid of it, who ended up having surgery because I had mine and shared my story. And so there was another way that God used me. You know, so many people, well, I'm going to say at least, I can name at least five or six people. I keep saying so many, but at least five or six people did have a surgery because I posted my entire journey on my Instagram. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's why I wanted to talk about this because it's not the go-to. And actually one of my my friends I went to fire school with had, um, by, I think it was bypass specifically, and he ended up getting necrotic and, and passed away at a very, very young age. So of course there's that that risk, but you know, it seemed, I, I know a lot of people that have done very well on it. So it's something that also needs to be talked about. And especially like you said, when you get people that are getting dangerously overweight, you know that 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 might be the 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 first step to then being able to exercise more, eat better. You know, so if it's if it's a bridge to improving other elements of your life, then then why not? So it's so good definitely. to hear that you found you know great results from it. Yeah, definitely, and I'm so you know thankful to Kaiser because I know other you know medical programs that they will just schedule you for your surgery, but Kaiser educated you first. They wanted you to attend these classes. You can't have the surgery without going to these classes first. You know, they want you to understand it's a life-changing. It's not just a cure. It's a life-changing uh, journey, you know. And so I know so many people, you know, in our culture, the Mexican culture, Chicano culture, we want to get things cheap. So a lot, I know a lot of people that run to Mexico just to have a, you know, uh, this gastric sleeve surgery who pay 25% of the cost of what it costs here. But. You know, now you're back in the United States sick because you didn't get educated on, you know, how to do it, how to treat it, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I know one person who didn't get up from the table because she ran to Mexico to go have a surgery, you know. And so I'm I'm thankful to Kaiser in, in many, many, many ways to making sure that that we were educated before we had uh, surgery. Brilliant. Well, that's great to hear. And, and you know, kudos to Kaiser for doing that. Because I mean, again, common sense, that, that seems like a pretty invasive procedure that you should be well versed in before you make a decision. Definitely, definitely. All right. Well, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been, you know, a great episode. And and I, I tell this to people a lot to have the courage to tell your story, especially, you know, if it's a story where, um, you know, it, you were down a dark path before and you were doing things that, you know, you weren't proud of when you look back. But I mean, again, like I said, I stole when I was young, you know, I've, I've, there's things that, that I could have been arrested for. I think a lot of us are, if we're honest and look back, you know, none of us are perfect. I haven't met a perfect person yet, but to tell, to, to be down that path and then be where you are today, um, I think is, is what we need to hear. You know, I think we're, we're sold the facade on TV, on Instagram that, Everyone else is is just fine, and you know they they don't struggle with any addiction, they don't struggle with breaking the law. Um, but the reality is that you know this is a human story, and and to to do what you're yeah, doing definitely. now is is inspirational. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. No problem, anytime. And I thank you again for allowing me to to get my story out there that people can change. You know, and one thing I I'd like to mention, just uh, you kind of touched on it a few seconds ago. I came across 10 years clean on October 1st, 2019. I didn't do it with NA or with AA or with CA. I, I, I did. I just ran out of gas. Now, I'm not saying that that's for everybody. If NA, if you need NA, please use NA or AA or CA or any of those organizations that help you stay clean. 
I truly ran out of gas, my brother. And that's how I came across my 10 years clean. Now, don't get me wrong. Every time that I accomplish something, I reach a new goal. You know, I have that angel or that angel of death on one shoulder saying, hey, man, you got 10 years clean. Let's go have a hit. You know, then the angel on the other side says, no way, man, you're going to lose everything you have. You know, so I battle cravings, even though it's been 10 years, I still battle cravings today, but I no longer entertain them. And within seconds, they're gone, you know? And so every time I, like I'm saying, I accomplish something new in life, or I reach a short-term goal, the first thing that attacks me is let's go celebrate. Let's go get a $10 hit. Let's go get a $5 hit. You can handle it now. And no way, no, no, no way. So I don't want everyone to think that, oh, he's done, he's fixed, he's good to go. No, sir. I battle it. When we're out on Skid Row and I smell those crack pipes burning and, and that crack smoke is in the air and I'm seeing these people push their pipes and seeing the drug dealers drop off, you know, all this dope, you know, all that. I get that euphoric feeling, you know, but it's no longer I'm no longer entertaining those thoughts because I, I've worked way too hard to be where I'm at today. Uh, and on top of that, I have a 10 year old little man here at my house who carries my name who expects to see me come home from work every night. And so I I cannot fail that little man. I can't. I do have a 13-year-old daughter. I love her to death. But it's my job to teach this little man how to be a little man, you know. And, and I cannot put my two kids through what I put my two oldest daughters to. I, I couldn't do it again. <laughs> 